You are listening to the Mercy View podcast. Mercy View exists to be a gospel-centered family of missional disciples to the glory of God and for the city's good. For more information about Mercy View, please visit our website at mercyview.com. Now, let's taste and see that the Lord is good. Good evening. Welcome to Mercy View. It's a joy to be with you tonight. Um, a few, couple more little announcements before we get going. Um, first, I want to remind you of our protocols as we're living life as the body during the pandemic. We want to uh, we want to keep that in front of everybody for the purpose of love. That we're going to keep our masks on the duration of our time, social distancing as best we can. Um, we want to carry on with that. Um, a couple more things. We have a, a nursing room for moms and babies that is out this door and to the left, my left, your right. So if you uh, feel like that would be something that you need or want to take advantage of now or at some point in the future, that's there for you. There's signage out there. Also, on the other side of this wall, there is a spectacular playground. Um, these are the kind of things that a dad of little boys notices. Um, that is available to you. As parents, if you want to take your kids out there and hang out with them while, they're, while they play, that is also there for you. We are in the second week of a series entitled Incarnate, where we are exploring the, the mystery of the incarnation together. It's totally appropriate to do that this time of year. Some of you all know that we live in a, an old house, 104 years old. We are almost done with a year of renovating. It's been a long year. I cannot tell you with words how joyful I will be when we are done. It'll look more like shouts and guttural screams, dancing. That will, be, that will encapsulate my joy. But we're not quite there yet. One of our most recent projects um, was to tear up and remove an old, nasty, torn-up driveway. So, instead of tearing up concrete in the conventional way with, a, with like a jackhammer that would do a lot of the work for you, I decided, because I am cheap and because I am stubborn, that the best thing to do to tear up that concrete would be to find the heaviest sledgehammer that I could find and get to work. And so I found a 16-pound sledgehammer, which is about double the normal, normal weight of sledgehammers, if you're not familiar with this kind of thing, and got to work. So my, my oldest son, Benaiah, was thrilled for this decision. Every day, he would put on his construction gear, hard hat, safety goggles, uh, reflective vest. He'd put on his boots, and he'd start talking in like a drawl. He'd say, hey, Dad, we've got work to do. Let's go hysterical, so funny. So we'd go out there and swing the hammer for a couple hours, get the wheelbarrow, make a pile. Swing the hammer, get the wheelbarrow, make a pile. After a couple weeks of doing that off and on, we had, we had torn up the entire driveway and this other pad that I wanted to get rid of. And there was a gigantic pile of destroyed concrete in, in my yard. And so the best way to deal with that, if you don't know, rent a dumpster, they drop it off, you fill it up, they take it away, it's wonderful. So we did that, so we rented it, it showed up, they backed it in, dropped it off. And it was like the middle of the work day, so I was like, all right, talking to my son, Benaiah, hey, you stay out, hang out here, man, try to open up the door, and I'm going to go back to work. 
If you don't know, concrete dumpsters open, so you can walk in them instead of having throwing concrete over them. You want the former, not the latter. You've got to open that door. And so he was, he was messing with the lock and the, the contraption for a little while. I, I went back upstairs in my office to work. And he came out, uh, came in rather, with a very serious look on his face and said, Dad, uh, I think we need a new dumpster. <laughs> I was like, why, man? He said, I can't open the door. It's broken. It's like, all right, well, let's go figure it out. So we went down there to look at it, and he had messed with the chain and the lever and all the contraption, whatever. But there was a, there was a pin, a linchpin, that was higher than he is. He's this tall. It's up here. Couldn't reach it, didn't see it, doesn't know what that is. So we popped the pin, the door opened, no big deal. The linchpin in that door and for our project was really important. We couldn't get that thing open if it was stuck or if it actually was broken. Our project was almost finished. Like, we're not going to throw all that stuff over the side of the dumpster. So we popped the pin, opened the door, filled it up. They took it away, thankfully never to be seen again. That pin, for the purpose of our project, was everything. It had to move in order that we open that door. There was no other option. It was, it was the only way forward. It was super important. And then, and then obviously from the company standpoint, that pin's super important too because you don't want a full dumpster of concrete dumping itself out all over the road. You need that pin. What's the point? What is the point? When you think about your life right now in particular, the world the way it is, the future with its uncertainties, in particular with the presence of this ongoing pandemic, a political season that just won't end, suffering of all types, even in our body, all around us, on what will you rely? What will be a foundation for you? What will be the linchpin to either keep the door closed, to keep the concrete in, or off to open the door to do the work? What will be that pin for you? The incarnation actually begins to supply answers for us to this end. To correctly rely on Jesus rather than any other would-be foundation, other, any would-be uh, pin. So with that said, I want you to see two points from our sermon in the text this morning. First, Jesus the eternal word. Jesus, the eternal Word. And then second, Jesus, the incarnate Word. Jesus, the incarnate Word. But first, let me pray. Our Father, thank You for Your love for sinners like us. Thank You, God, that You have worked as a demonstration of Your magnificent mercy, Your glorious grace, Your loving kindness, to send your Son to live and to die for us. God, open our eyes um, to, to the, the glories in your word that we might find wonderful things in it. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So if you have your Bible, we'll look at John 1, pick it up in verse 1. Let me read that for us. Jesus, the eternal word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made 
that was made. There are several parallels here in John 1 that are pointing us back to Genesis 1, the creation account. We are told here that the eternal word or the logos with Jesus was with God. He was with God. He was God and all things were made through Him. And in case we're wondering, you have curiosity about, okay, what is the Word? We, John tells us later in John 1, down in verse 14, where he says, the Word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Gospel of John has high Christology, high Christology, the doctrine of Christ. So when we, he starts the book by pointing out the divinity of Jesus. He was at the beginning. He was there with God. In fact, he, he was God. Moreover, Jesus is the agent through which creation was, uh, came into existence. Looking back at these parallels between Genesis 1 and John 1, how, question for you, how did God bring everything into existence. What did he do? Well, we're told back in Genesis 1, starting in verse 3, that God said, let there be light. Then in verse 6, we are told God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of waters. Then we are told repeatedly, God said, God said, God said, God said. Then God said, finally, down in verse 26, let us make man in our image. How did God create? He spoke. The eternal word in, in, in John 1, 3, Jesus is the one through whom God created everything in Genesis 1. Jesus is not only the agent of creation, but John is very clear that Jesus is the eternal word. He is God. This is one of the most important passages in the Bible that begins to unpack for us the mysteries of the Trinity. That Jesus, the Word, was with God, implying relationship. You can see that fleshed out later in John 1 in verse 18. He makes that point clear. One of the significant themes in the Gospel of John is that Jesus is constantly pointing to His relationship with the Father. In this, the Father and the Son are distinct in that they have a relationship with one another. However, we also find in John 1 that the Word, Jesus, is also God. He's not a subordinate being to the Father. He's certainly not a created being. He is every bit as God as the Father. You will also find a significant theme in the Gospel of John that Jesus is saying over and over again that the Father and I are one, pointing to their co-equality. The early church actually articulated this reality by saying that Jesus and the Father are of the same substance. Their nature or their ontology are the same. By contrast, with created beings, we are fundamentally different than God, although we bear His image, which is remarkable. We are not of the same substance as God. The church has grappled with the uniqueness of Jesus for a long time. 
Um, even now, when we try to understand some of the contours and the, the details of the Incarnation, of doctrines like the Trinity or the fact that Jesus is 100% God and 100% ma- uh, man, we are sort of on the edges of our mind's ability to understand some of those details, how they work together. But theology, like that we've just talked through, and in general, is not simply an intellectual exercise. It's not only for the mind, it's, it's for the heart. In fact, John Calvin, the 16th century Protestant reformer said, true knowledge of God leads to worship. True knowledge of God leads to worship. Would-be knowledge of God that doesn't lead to worship, according to Calvin, isn't actually true knowledge of God. So, let's work out that idea together, putting it into practice. The question, how can the theology of the incarnation stir your affections for the Lord? How can the theology of the incarnation stir true, righteous, gracious affections for the Lord, leading you to worship. A few, few examples here. First, the incarnation points to the lengths to which God went to rescue His people, to rescue you. When you think about yourself clearly, honestly, good, bad, ugly, all, then consider that God knows the whole story of your life, all of it. All of it, the parts that only you know about or even the parts of which that you are not aware yet. And then knowing that, sent His Son to go into the world, leaving heaven, coming to the earth to die for you. One of the appropriate responses to that kind of interplay and reality is, I would would argue, is to sit back and ask the question, in light of this being true, all of what we just talked about, what must God do? be like? What must he be like to lose his son to save me, to send Jesus to find me? What must he be like? Well, he must be merciful. He must be gracious. He must be kind, loving, steadfast, patient, gentle. He must love you a lot, a lot. Second, another another point The incarnation points us to the accessibility of God. I don't know if you've ever thought about that God has made himself accessible to you through Jesus. He didn't have to do that. He didn't have to bridge the chasm that exists between us and him. He didn't have to come down the mountain knowing that we couldn't go up to the top, but he did. In Christ, he did. A passage that illustrates God's heart on this particular point is in Mark 10. The disciples are there with Jesus. There are children trying to come to Jesus, and they get in the children's way. And Jesus says this in verse 14, Mark 10. But when he saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for such belongs the kingdom of God. In the incarnation, you are seeing the heart of the Father in Jesus clearing away obstacles that keep you from him. Clearing them away, like in Mark 10, he cleared away the obstacles for the children. Third, the incarnation points to God's compassion toward you. God is not aloof. He is not distant or uninterested in you or your struggles and your suffering. 
In fact, we see in Jesus the total opposite. In Matthew 9.36, the evangelist says this, When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Since Jesus is the perfect image of the Father, His heart of compassion toward the crowds in Matthew 9 mirrors is the same heart of compassion toward you. God saw you from afar that you were harassed and helpless like a sheep without a shepherd, and He acted. He moved toward you. Jesus came to be your shepherd, to care for you, to protect you, to make you lie down in green pastures, to lead you by still waters, to restore your soul. Friends, who else can restore your soul? I've been thinking about the idea of restoration in this passage as as it relates to this sermon this week. So often, so often in my own life, I think to myself, I need to be restored. I need to start again. I need my, my, the, the slate wiped away. I need someone, something to come in and make the wrongs inside of me right so that we can move forward. Maybe you have experiences like that. Who can do that? Jesus can do that. And the incarnation shows us that God in His mercy sent Him to do that for you now. Knowing what you are like, knowing what he is like, knowing what it would cost him, knowing everything. He saw you from afar that you were harassed and helpless and came to be your shepherd. These are just three examples of how the theology of the incarnation can lead you to worship, to stir true, gracious affections in your heart for the Lord. Again, asking one of my favorite questions, what must He be like? The incarnation, in one sense, is like God breaking into this world. It's the culture of heaven invading the culture of earth. It's the light shining into the darkness. When Jesus, the eternal Word, came to the world and became the incarnate Word, the world changed. It changed. And there's no going back. This brings me to the second point I want you to see this evening. Jesus, the incarnate word. If you have your Bible back in John 1, we'll pick it up in verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus, the incarnate word, brings life where there was death. He shines light into darkness. In other words... Jesus is the center, He is the foundation, He is the key, He is the linchpin in God's plan for redeeming His people. Perhaps the most predominant theologian in the 20th century described this idea like this. He said, the Old Testament is full of expectation of Jesus, while the New Testament is full of recollection of Jesus. In this sense, then, Jesus is the linchpin in the story of the Bible, He's the hinge on which it all turns, the foundation on which it all sits. But also, He is the linchpin or the foundation for your life, on which you can rely, on which you can build hope, life, peace, joy, comfort, etc. It's on Him. Look back with me at verse 5. 
The light shines into the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John again pointing us back to the creation account in Genesis 1, in which there was darkness, God spoke, let there be light, and there was no longer darkness. But John here is not only looking back, he's looking forward. He's forecasting, he's foreshadowing that Jesus, the incarnate word, would come into the world and push back and overcome darkness, that he would shine as a light in and among his people. He's foreshadowing here opposition that Jesus would face. The enemy, think about the the desert temptation narratives. The, the, The Jews who attempted to kill him, the Romans who actually killed him, Um, try as they might, all this opposition failed. In fact, the metaphor, I would argue, speaks to the reality that these, these, these who opposed him actually had no chance. No chance. If you walk into a dark room and flip on the light, the room is no longer dark. Why? Because light always pushes out darkness. If everything's working, everything's good, you hit the switch, the room is not dark anymore. It's light because darkness can't overcome light. In this way, those who opposed Jesus in his life, and even now, cannot actually oppose him in a real, meaningful, earnest way like they have the opportunity to win. Let's take this idea, this paradigm of light and dark, in a couple directions. First, we'll zoom out, and then we'll zoom in. So first, zooming out, wide-angle view of history. Way back in Genesis 12, About 2,000 years before Jesus, you may remember that God makes some promises to a man called Abraham. He says, Abraham, I'm going to make you a father of a great nation. I'm going to bless the world through your family. In other words, the light of God would shine into the darkness of the world through Abraham and his family. If you look at the story of the Old Testament from this angle, you'll notice that the, the light of God, the knowledge of God, the worship of God predominantly stays within Israel. Now, there are, there are some obvious exceptions, people like Ruth, who was a Moabite, or the time when Jonah went and preached to the city of Nineveh, and the text tells us that the city repented. But for the most part, we see the knowledge of God, the worship of God, in Israel. But there's expectation in the Old Testament. There's foreshadowing that that would not always be the case. One of the ways that the prophets articulate this expectation is to say that the glory of God will cover the dry ground of the earth like the waters cover the sea. Expectation of the light of God going into the darkness of the world. So the Old Testament period ends. Jesus comes onto the scene as the light of God to push back darkness. He does this in all kinds of ways. In his actual life, he does this by casting out demons. He does it by healing the sick. He does it by preaching the good news of the kingdom. He does it by actually being obedient and fulfilling the law. He does it by going to the cross. In his death, he pushes back darkness by the light of God, by triumphing over the powers, the principalities, the authorities, by putting them to shame. He does that by paying for his people's sin on the cross. In his resurrection, He brings the light of a new world of sorts where the good news of Jesus would go across the borders of Israel and to the whole world. Way back in Genesis 12, where God promised to bless the world through Abraham, his family, that promise was fulfilled and is being fulfilled through the person and work 
of Jesus. Now, in the last 2,000 years, from Jesus to us, roughly the same time period as from uh, Abraham to Jesus, we see the light of God going everywhere, all over the world. If you're a Christian here, sitting right now in Tulsa, Oklahoma, on the other side of the planet, you are that, you are one, because the light of God has pushed back the darkness for 2,000 years. So much so that the light of God has gone to the nations, to a bunch of Gentiles here, sitting here, thousands of miles from Israel, thousands of years later, with all the complicating factors that brought you here to this place, to the knowledge of God. You have that knowledge of God because God in His love has pushed back the darkness to the point to show you, to bring His light to bear in your life that you would know Him, that you would love Him, that you would be a part of His family. Or to say it like the prophets in the Old Testament, so that the glory of God would cover the earth, the dry ground, like the waters cover the sea. Friends, that's what's happening. Now, is it over? Of course not. Is it done? No, not yet. But with faith, we can look back at the, the, the previous 4,000 years of history to Abraham, and we can look forward and trust that the Lord will bring that to pass, and also invite us, invite you into that mission to spread the good news of Jesus on his mission with him. Zooming out, now zooming in. Jesus, the incarnate word, the light of God, shines his light in the darkness of your own heart of your own heart. One of the aspects of the Christian life um, is that we are in the middle of our sanctification, meaning that we struggle with sin, that we make bad decisions, that we are attracted to darkness, and we even live in darkness from time to time. God is aware of this. He knows He's gracious, merciful, loving, patient, kind with you, Jesus, along with the Holy Spirit, is also alongside this truth of God's patience, His kindness with you, is constantly shining the light of God into new facets of your heart. So God is patient with you, yes, and He is working on your heart. He is shining that light into new areas. Maybe an example of this. Think about your own life. Think about patterns of sin maybe that you've had for a while. Maybe a couple years ago, maybe even like six months ago, sin that you didn't really have a problem with, honestly, like you didn't really care much about it, now you do. Maybe now you're bothered by that sin that didn't really hit your radar a little while ago. Maybe now you feel conviction about particular sin that hasn't really been in your vision before. How did that happen? Why did that happen? Well, one of the reasons is because God, the light of Jesus, is shining into your heart, opening up new facets, lighting up new corners and crannies in your heart that need to be lit up. Think about it like this. If you walk into your house tonight after, the, after church, you have all the lights off, you walk into the house, you really can't see anything. It's dark in there. But as you walk through, you flip on lights Different rooms flip on different lights and the, the house is now lit up and you can see more clearly. You have more awareness of what's around you. God's light in your life is doing the same thing. It's raising your awareness. It's shining light in the darkness. And when we think about our hearts, 
Friends, honestly, when we think about our hearts and consider what's actually in there, deep, deep down, it can be scary. Like, we can be totally honest about that. It's terrifying to me, the things that are in my heart. But the light of God shining in those areas, bringing them to bear, bringing them out into the light, is good. It's so good. It's good that God exposes the darkness in our hearts, in your heart, so that we, so that you can deal with it. Sin is not static. We see this all over the Scripture. An example is in Genesis 4 where God's talking to Cain and he tells Cain that his sin desires to consume him. We see it again in James where the, where the apostle says that sin, it, it grows. And it, it, it ends in death. One of the gracious things that God has done in the life of a Christian, in your life, is to expose your sin so that you can see it, so that you can bring other people around you and kill it before it overwhelms and consumes you because that's what sin does. It's not your friend. It's not a pet. It wants to destroy you. And God in His mercy, in His grace, has shined light into your heart so you can see it and take action against it. By putting your sin to death, friend, listen, you become more like Jesus. And that's kind of the point of how he's working in our lives. It's also good that this light shines in the darkness so you can see with greater clarity your need for him. Your need for him. You see, self-righteousness, the lie of self-sufficiency that our culture loves so much, the pride that undergirds much of our sin keeps you from seeing what you need to see. It keeps these things in the dark. But God, in His mercy, has shined the light into your heart so you can see, so you can push back against self-righteousness or self-sufficiency, this lie from the culture, to see that actually, actually the truth is that you need Jesus like you need air to breathe. Like our late modern Western culture that loves self-sufficiency so much, it is a lie. You're not self-sufficient. You need Jesus like you need air to breathe or water to drink. If you don't have that, if you don't have air or water, you're toast. You're going to die. Spiritually speaking, if you don't have Jesus, you're going to die. So he has, in his loving kindness, showed us the way. He said, here, light up my heart so that I can see my need for you. Neediness might not feel like a good attribute to you, but in the kingdom, it's actually a prerequisite to say, Lord, I need you, help me need you. And he'll do, he will help you with that. He will cultivate humility in you. Faith, hope, trust, and, and a godly neediness or dependence on him. Friends, Jesus, the eternal and the incarnate word is the linchpin. He is the foundation, the cornerstone of God's story of redemption. He is the linchpin of your life. Don't rely on anything else. Any other would-be source foundation on which you would, might rely will fail you. 
utterly. But in Him is life and the light of men. And in the incarnation, we see God advancing His plan for redemption. We see God moving toward His people. We see God giving you life. We see God overcoming darkness with the light of His Son. Let's pray.